And then, um, as you could see in the poster coming in, we're talking about Jesus and sexuality today. And my own folks are here as well, which is always special, talking about sex in front of your parents. <laughs> <coughs> so, <coughs> if you do pick up some awkwardness as I get going today, you might just know the reason. Confident in the word, awkward amongst the folks. No. Guys, we're in week two, and I want to quickly catch up, and I want to catch you up with a thought experiment that comes from Pastor Timothy Keller. So join me in this thought experiment, which will appear on the screen. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain, A.D. 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now, imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will look at the aggression and think, that is not who I want to be. And he will seek deliverance and therapy and anger management programs. He will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, that is who I am. That's a thought experiment. And that, in a way, summarizes our first week together. Because we said in that first week, essentially, the major point of departure, why it's so hard to talk to each other, starts at the, at the point of departure around which story do you believe? Do you believe the secular story or do you believe the Jesus story? Do you believe there's a creator who made us in his image or don't you? Because at that point of departure, once you've accepted a story, you will find yourself living out that story. And, and what's the point of the thought experiment? Well, the thought experiment is to show us that we don't actually get our identity from ourselves. What actually happens is the stories we believe help to give us an interpretive grid through which we push all our feelings through that interpretive grid, and then we choose our behaviors and as we sift through. It's these interpretive grids that actually give us our identity. So there's some sort of standard or rule from outside of ourselves which help our warring feelings and emotions, help us make sense of those. So let's go back to our Anglo-Saxon warrior or our modern Manhattan or Cape Townian man. Where do they get their grids that help them interpret life? From their cultures, from their communities, from their heroic stories. They live out the stories they believe. Tim Keller again says this, they are actually not simply choosing to be themselves. They are filtering their feelings, jettisoning some, embracing others. They are choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them they may be. They are choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them they may be. That's a summary of week one. And if you are a guest, yeah, welcome, welcome. As you can see, we're going into some deep waters together. And I'd encourage you to go and download our podcast to catch up. Uh, in, in, in speed. We are going slightly longer on Sundays because this is a topic people are asking about. It's already been our most downloaded talk so far this year because I think it shows an appetite to make sense of what story do I believe in and how do I live in that story consistently. And just a reminder that the church should be the one place because we are saved by the grace we've been talking about, by a God who, who knows us and yet chose to love us. Because we're saved by that grace, this should be the one place where all those who struggle in this area, who are curious about this area, can come 
even with views that are different to Jesus, and ask questions and journey with us. And so again, a reminder to join us afterwards if you'd like to ask any questions. Today, I'm really grateful to John Tyson, in particular, another New York pastor who helped give the framework for our time together today. So if we know the major issue is the, is the story you believe in, we would then now look at the, the God story and say, well, fortunately, God doesn't leave us to figure it out ourselves. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, God with us. And that's why the series is titled Jesus and Sexuality, specifically Jesus. And let's look at Jesus' teaching on sexuality in the kingdom of God. It's Matthew 5 from verse 27. It'll appear here. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes, right hand, sorry, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, that might be a new message to you. You might have heard it many times. But just safe to say that Jesus had quite a radical message to share around this area of sexuality. In the time we're living in, many would say, what's the big deal? Lighten up. But Jesus is effectively saying here is, this is the big deal. And I think if we reflect on our experiences through life, I think most of us would acknowledge, yes, sexuality is a big deal. I thought in particular of my standard five class. We had to do orals. And the one guy, I won't name and shame him. I could, but I won't. He brought his PC to school. And he had the express kind of mission of showing the class pornography. That was why he brought it. It was his oral, and he was going to show us porn, but he didn't want the teacher to find out. So he stuck it slightly in front of the teacher's desk. Everyone sort of shrouded around. I will never forget the buzz in the class as it slowly, line by line, started loading up the image that he wanted to share with us. Cut to today, and you don't have to go to such a mission of wheeling a PC into a classroom to get that level of excitement. With smartphones, streaming services, it is available 24-7 in our pockets. There is just so much power to human sexuality. I still remember kind of going, wow, this is interesting as I sat in that classroom. And the same is true, I think, of all of us. And you see, God designed sexuality to play a particular role. He's not surprised by the, the power that's in it. He designed that power. But unfortunately, it has, at the same time, the ability to be a disproportionate, powerful for damage in our lives. Instead of a powerful transformation, it can become a powerful deformation of our characters. And I think that's why he uses such strong language. Jesus doesn't play games when he talks about the power in our sexuality, and neither did Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus. He's writing to a city of Corinth. It's a coastal city, much like Cape Town. People are living large. People are sleeping with temple prostitutes. People are going, what's the big deal? And this is what Paul writes to them, coaching them in this area of sexuality from 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 12, he says, and he's quoting here their own, their own sort of prophets and their own songs as he goes along. So that's what he's quoting. He says, all things are lawful me, lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And here's the big message. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Lots we could comment here, but how about that line? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, Sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We've often been told, you know, all sins are equal, all sins are equal. And to some degree, that's true in that they separate us from God. But what Paul's teaching here is that, no, that's not true in another sense, around the impact it can have on our lives. What Paul's clearly teaching here is that when we go wrong in our sexuality and practicing it, we are unleashing a power to really deform our lives. This is not something happening outside of us. This is happening inside of us. It distorts our personality and ourselves. I'll ask a simple question. How does someone become a pervert or become an abuser or become someone who who goes far down the road? No one's born that way, but over the course of time, by various incorrect decisions and understandings, by living in the wrong story, they can find themselves bending in towards themselves. So this is doing more than just touching on our behaviors. This is talking about who are we becoming. It's talking about our formation. And again, the story that Jesus and Paul are communicating is saying, this is a big deal. The other story, the secular story, is saying, it's not a big deal. Lighten up. Well, which one's right? Which one's right? I think Philip Yancey gets it right when he says this, and it'll appear on the screen. He says, sex used outside of God's vision has enough combative force to incinerate conscience, vows, family commitments, religious devotion, and almost anything else in its path. And Mary Everstead writes in in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pull, which really talks about how the sexual revolution is empowered by the pull, says, contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. Now, in a room like this today, there are people with a a wide spectrum of experience, a wide spectrum of uh, sexual backgrounds. And anything that we say as a community, I'm saying now, is not here to produce shame or guilt or condemnation in any way. We are all both victims and victimizers if we reflect back on our own lives and in many ways when it comes to our sexuality. And so the question today isn't to try and apportion blame and find the, the biggest victim or the biggest perpetrator. Now the question today is to ask ourselves this. Regardless of where we're coming from, can we bring our sexuality to the person of Jesus, God with us, who was so kind with all kinds of people who struggled in life, including those that struggled with their sexuality. You think of him with the woman at the well, the him with the woman caught in adultery. And the question is, will we ask him to shape us? Or we ask him to form us. It's us going to Jesus and Jesus, I want you to be Lord of all of my life, every state of my life, including the, my aroused state. God, I'm here to offer that to you. And if at the end of our message, we will have an opportunity for all of us to respond in that way.
So with no shame or condemnation, I'm here to ask you the question when it comes to your sexuality. What is your vision? What is your vision for this incredible power that is inside of you? Will you choose to place in the hands of Jesus and to follow his ways, that it would be a case of sexual formation in the way of Jesus? But before I get to describing that, I want to just quickly say that there's been some misunderstanding over time around what that would look like. And one of the things which is important is some people would say, you know, this whole area of life, it's so scary and it's so kind of forbidden. I actually am just going to take the approach of I'm going to fear. This power that kind of comes up in me as it did in my sort of standard five classroom, this, this fear is just too powerful. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to not go there. I think the message along the lines of, look, <coughs> when it comes to church, this is something that you shouldn't really talk about. It's sort of like don't ask, you know, don't tell kind of truce is put on this area. Um, you're sort of told most of your life, don't think about it, it's dirty, it's, it's, you must be fearful of it, and then you get married, and it's like, this is the greatest thing in the world, go for it, and you're like, uh, which one was it? Like, wh- how, did, how did saying my vows suddenly change the whole view on this thing? Like, it just seems a little inconsistent. I think of camps that we went on where uh, clothing things were regulated in, in high school, that was like kind of the, the, like the, the point of these camps was to kind of talk to us about those things, and, you know, and, and I remember one dormitory in particular, it had big sign, no worldly dancing, you know, because we all know where worldly dancing could end up. So it's, it's a fear of sexual desire. Uh, Philip Yancey in his book, Rumors of Another World, does a whole chapter on what he calls designer sex, and he describes how the repression of this sexual desire, this fear of sexual desire, has actually been part of the church for many, uh, many, many decades, centuries, in fact. He talks about how sex was banned on a whole bunch of days, such that actually, according to some church calendars, you were only allowed to have sex 44 times a year. There were only 44 days set aside. Um, One pope even assigned, this is a true story, Daniel the Trouserer, whose job it was to go around painting over the nudes of the Sistine Chapel with trousers. So the basic vision of this way of understanding our sexual desire is this. Moral standards plus willpower will eventually lead to holiness. That's the kind of equation. So I've got moral standards, I've got willpower, that's going to lead to holiness. And let's ask the simple question, how is that actually working out for us? Yancey again says the effect of this attitude is that people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not as its inventor. I'm reminded of an Australian, Alan Hirsch, who at weddings would always ask a rather startled audience, who invented the orgasm? God or Satan? And people would kind of go, please hurry up, this is awkward. And he would answer it. He'd say, God invented the orgasm. Do you want to meet the God who invented the orgasm? (laughs) See, surveys tell us that a lot of people don't view God as that, and therefore, they don't see the need to comply with what he has said about our sexuality. And so what happens is that there's sometimes very little difference between those who attend church and those that don't in areas like premarital intercourse or cohabitation surveys. It also means that a lot of people have left the church in disgust around the hypocrisy about what gets said and then what actually happens on the ground as priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. So if we're honest about this whole way of thinking, about the fear of desire, it looks more like this. Moral standards plus willpower equal failure. It's just not working. So that's made us, it's left us going, well, what do I do with this innate energy and this kind of sexuality that I find inside of myself? Well, that second message then might be, let's not fear it, let's just follow it. Let's go with the flow. The pendulum swings the other way, and in this vision, it's desire plus consent that equals freedom. 
as long as I want it and as long as they're willing, um, we're going to find freedom and fulfillment in our sexuality. And this is a cultural vision of, of sex positivity. There's a whole movement around sex positivity. It's a movement that doesn't in general moralize or make ethical distinctions between heterosexual, homosexual sex or masturbation. It's just all a matter of personal preference. Here's Carol Queen, one of the proponents. She says, sex positive, it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions in a different, on a different medium. That instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, you should be thinking in terms of millions. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference, possibility. This movement essentially says, man, follow your desires like any other appetite. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're hungry, you'd eat at the new spot down the road that's been started by the guys who founded HQ. If you're aroused, you have sex. And if no one's around and no one's willing to consent, you look at pornography, I mean, pornography, you masturbate. It's just a physical desire. What's the big deal here? Now, at the start of the sexual revolution, I think a lot of people leaned in and went, oh, this sounds exciting, let's go. But 50, 60 years later, we're in a position to see what the returns are from this experiment. Because let's face it, it's been a massive experiment. And we can look at it and say, is this really producing the freedom and the flourishing that it's promised. We find the development of the hookup culture that's leaving people numb, where sex is disconnected from love, relationship, and emotion. We still have a lot of love songs talking about love and love and love, but now more and more we're getting songs that tell the other story, the breakup story and the pain caused by it. This from um, a song by the poet Taylor Swift <laughs> and Bon Iver um, from the song Exile, which was nominated at last year's Grammys for Song of the Year. I think I've seen this film before and I didn't like the ending. You're not my homeland anymore. Speaking about that oneness that used to exist and no longer does. So what am I defending now? You were my town. Now I'm in exile seeing the odds. I think I've seen this film before. It's heartbreaking. And that's why Britain has actually appointed their own loneliness minister. Actually, someone today in the Britain who is the loneliness minister, let me quote Theresa May, who was the prime minister who instituted this cabinet position. She said this, she said, loneliness is a reality for far too many people in our society today. It can affect anyone of any age and background across our communities. There are people who can go for days, weeks, or even months without seeing a friend or family member. Loneliness is one of the greatest public health challenges of our time. This is in 2018. This is before the coronavirus made us even more split out and separate from each other. Bottom line is, when you follow your freedom, you don't end up getting there. As families are split apart, communities are split apart, and loneliness epidemic is running rampant, along with anxiety and a whole bunch of other things. You see, desire plus consent is not actually reaping freedom. I think it's fairer to say that it's reaping disillusionment as people who have more sexual choice than they've ever had before are left more dissatisfied and disillusioned with their sexuality. You see, if you follow the story, the secular story, you don't believe there's a creator. And if there's not a creator, then you don't have a design. It's a coincidence, not creation. If there's no design, well then, you, it's up to you to make a purpose. And you can make up any purpose you want, and there's no one holding you accountable. You can literally do whatever you want, and therefore there's no fear of consequences, See, on the other side of the equation, we believe with Scripture that the fear of God is the beginning of 
wisdom that it needs to flourish in. If you've got a worldview that has no purpose, no consequences, and no accountability, I think it describes the kind of confusion we see and the loneliness and the pain we see in our world today. So the question is, does Jesus have something different to offer? Is Jesus like old school fear, 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 sexual desire, or is he like follow, follow, follow your sexual desire? Does he have something different to offer us? And I've got good news. I think he does. I think he does. And this is the whole topic of sexual formation in the way of Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't about behavior modification. It's not about even practices or even motives. The question he's really asking us, kind of the thing he wants us to, to say to ourselves is, who am I becoming by what I am doing? Who am I becoming? Am I, am I if I close my eyes and thinking about my thoughts over yesterday, and imagine if I took that day and I multiplied it by thousands of days to come, what kind of person would I become on the other side of that? Jesus is inviting you to offer to him your whole life, including your sexuality, and ask him to form you as the one who made you in his image. And so, again, if we, if we ask the question, who am I becoming around this area, we could go and have a look at all of Scripture. One of the chapters, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is a good one. It's Paul, again, speaking to a church in a city, in a Greco-Roman context, that are going wild, that people are all over the show. And this is what he has to write to them about sexuality in the way of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, from, chapter, uh, from verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, this process of becoming more and more who God made you to be that you abstain from sexual immorality, so it sounds a lot like fear of sexual desire right now, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And there's something of a promise here that God doesn't leave us to willpower alone. He gives us his spirit to form in us. Every passage of the Bible that speaks about our sexuality understands its incredible power to transform us or to, or to deform us. And all the prohibitions placed in here are to prevent this important part of our lives from deforming us. It's, there's something to be protected. There's something powerful and fragile that needs to be protected, and that's what Scripture understands. So the obvious question then to ourselves is, well, how do we live this out? How on earth do we live this out? And I want to quickly just help us get a vision for sexuality from Scripture, this vision which is to see sexuality as a holistic tool for our transformation, our sanctification, our our being made in the image of Christ, being formed. Let me quickly just speak to you about the first thing we need to get a vision for is actually the purpose of sexuality, the understanding that it's something that points beyond itself, that it's something which, which is there to remind us of a true story that we actually long for. You see, sex is a signpost of something greater. In the beginning, we were told we were, they were naked and not ashamed. But today, we're naked and we are ashamed. Even with our clothes on, we're hiding from each other. Our emotional vulnerability and our kind of lives are kept from God. See, sexuality should remind us that there is a God who loves us and has chosen us and has rescued us. He's seen us at our worst. 
And he himself got naked and vulnerable on a cross on our behalf, gave himself to us unconditionally. Sexuality is pointing beyond itself. There's incredible scripture around at the beginning of man and woman, the only time in Genesis where it says it was not good. Before the fall, only time it was said it was not good is when Adam was by himself. And we see in history the marriage supper, this picturing, the wrapping up of all where Jesus is coming again and where everyone, male and female, is described as the bride, meaning the bridegroom. This marriage on this side of eternity is but a small picture of that great wedding banquet to come. Second thing it does, besides pointing beyond itself, is it helps us be transformed. It helps us be transformed. Any parent knows that if you spoil a child and let them get whatever they want, incredible selfishness is going to develop in their hearts. At the exact same time, I want to just quickly ask, does that stop when we stop being a child? Even as adults, if we just insist on it in our own way, do you think we cultivate selfishness or do we cultivate servanthood? It's actually a great gift to us that we're not able to engage in sex at will in any time because because it helps us understand more and more what it means to serve others and not to build them towards ourselves. Final thing around sexuality, just as a vision, is that it is a witness to the world. It is a witness to the world. It leads to healing and restoration. I think about <coughs> the pitch of the early church, right? So now, okay, he's died, he's resurrected. People are kind of like, maybe I've heard about that. And then it starts getting into the specifics. Okay, okay, so hear me out. If that's true, what does that mean for my life? And what the early church would have said is, well, that actually turns it upside down. You're no longer your own. Your body's been bought at a price. You live for the good of others. You love God and you love others. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means we're financially generous. We give a lot to other people. It's like, what? How does it affect my sex life? Oh, big time, big time. No more temple prostitutes. No more sleeping around. You, it's celibacy or you're in marriage, male and female. It's a tough sell, people. I think any sort of newspaper columnist or someone at that time would have gone, mm, interesting faith, <laughs> probably not going to catch on. And the early writers said it. They said, this Christian, and I forget exactly what it says, these Christians are utterly bizarre. They are stingy with their bodies, but generous with their finances. Stingy with their bodies, generous with their finances. Like, who, who's like this? Everyone else was the opposite. Stingy with their butts, but anyone, anything goes. And of course, from our vantage point of history, this absolutely weird view of the world has transformed history. Could it be that it's true? It's a holistic tool for transformation. And at this point, I could stop, you know, 26 minutes, well done, there we go, go off, easy game, good luck. But I think there are some challenges to this vision, and I want to fly through them. There's some temptations that we face. And the question I'm not answering is, you know, how far is too far, and what about this? I'm just going to ask you to ask the question, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? And we're going to hit four things, believe it or not. This is excitement. Mom, Dad, you ready? Porn, <laughs> masturbation, dating, and uh, cohabitation. So let's get, let's get started. Porn. Okay, porn pretty much has exploded. It is a younger generation that has, and obviously every generation, that pretty much has on-demand um, porn supply in their pockets. All kinds of Stats uh, vary, but the last stats I got was that South Africa, on one of the biggest porn websites in the world, South Africans rank in the top 20. So we are some of the biggest users of porn even in, um, in the world. To show you how out of touch with the reality are, this is now the number one way in which teenagers are learning about sex. This is becoming almost the major education tool. And suffice to say that this is not real. Porn is, porn is not real, and therefore it's it's creating a whole bunch of misinformation and unrealistic expectations around the world. It is a 
it's fair to say there's a sickness. And this is not just a Christian pastor speaking to you. Speak to psychologists, speak to sociologists, speak to anyone who's done any research in this area, and there is massive concern no matter where you find yourself as far as the, the, you know, the, your, your, your belief around the big questions of life. Porn users, um, age, uh, you know, ages getting younger and younger. It has the power to rewire our brains. Our reward centers become numb. They literally numb themselves, and so a greater stimulus is required. More dopamine is required. And one of the unintended consequences is that we actually end up having far less empathy for one another. So this lie that it's just something I do on my own that has no impact is not actually true. As they say, neurons that fire together wire together, and this is distorting our culture. Some, some stats. More than half uh, divorces cite internet porn as being one of the major factors leading to the differences. Human trafficking is rife, and most of the human trafficking exists around the creation of online porn. And um, the stats of porn addicts, people that use 10 or, hour, uh, 10 or more hours of porn, are, are up all over the world. Um, doing some searching to, um, to prepare for today. The tragic story this week alone, a mom was arrested um, selling pornography of her four-year-old daughter, um, citing tough economic conditions, and this being the one way she can provide for her family. See, the problem with porn is it exploits the weakest and the vulnerable, and it lies about the fact that it is something private that hurts no one. Porn distorts our lives because it shows not far too much of the person, but actually far too little of the person. Someone made in the image of God who has had their life distorted by the system that chews them up and spits them out. So again, the question to all of us is, who are we becoming if we start going down this road and we fire up our neurons? Emotionally, relationally, physically, it is a stuff up, and that's just not even um, the politest, many, many other words I could say, but it is something that's harming us. <laughs> the next question is around masturbation. Um, there's nothing actually in the Bible here, but I'm grateful for John Tyson's work. He found C.S. Lewis writing to us, and if you know C.S. Lewis, he's someone who can put uh, a, a phrase together. Picture him sitting with a pipe in his hand. You got to sit in a, in a lazy boy chair next to him, and he's writing to you a letter, which is uh, what they found in his files. And he is talking to a young man who asked him about masturbation and the role it can play. And there's some key concepts that come up in this letter, which I'd like to point out up front. He describes it as having the potential to be sin um, turned in on itself, or love turned in on itself. And so let's give a read. Picture CS next to you. He's got his pipe. He's taken a drag. He's blown out. And now he's going to speak to us. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which, in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren. And it turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with the real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Takes another puff of his pipe. Continues it. Among those shadowy brides, he's always adored always the perfect lover. No demand is made of him on his unselfishness. No mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. 
And it's not only the faculty of love, which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is A, to help us understand other people, B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it is also a bad use provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successes, distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world. For example, picturing all I'd do if I were rich instead of earning and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of the imagination in erotic matters, which I think bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse of it in all spheres. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves out of the little dark prison we are born in, masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of becoming to love the prison. Again, the question is, am I repressing desire or am I just allowing it to run riot? No, the question isn't that. The question is, who am I becoming? And some key phrases here that we can cultivate a harm within and we can abuse our imagination and we can end up loving the prison. You see, when we bend in towards ourselves, God comes and says, no, bend out towards loving me and loving others. And this is a practice that can harm us. So again, Paul, what are you saying? You're saying, who are you becoming is the right question. Ephesians 5, which we looked at last year, says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. <laughs> How are we doing? How are we doing? You want to talk about dating? You want to talk about dating? Guys, I'm... Never dated on, this, um, on, the app, on the app world, but I know many of you today are, are having to. And I want to quickly give a little history. Dating as a word only came about in 1914 before it was something called courtship. And it was very, very different. The process of growing up in a village where people knew you quite well meant, especially as a man and a woman, that your character and who you were was well known. And it really was around that that dating took place. But around 1914, when out went um, courtship and in came dating. It formed around other things, in particular fun and entertainment. You no longer were dating within the bounds of family. No, you had to get away in your car and go date somewhere else. You see, the focus shifted to being seen, having fun, spending money. And where we see that multiplied through today is we end up with dating apps all over the place and hookup culture being kind of synonymous. Now, there are good ways to do this, bad ways to do this, but if you don't, like me, know about what dating apps is, someone said <coughs> dating apps are like um, take a lot to deliver you hot people. That's the one phrase. There's an article by a hedge fund manager out of New York. His name was, um, oh, sorry, the hedge fund is called Tyro Capital Hedge Fund. And he took, <laughs> it was quite amusing for me just uh, enjoying sort of finance language and that bit of my background. Okay, check my connection. He did um, some research on this whole dating um, story. <coughs> Sorry, that should be better. And he wanted to show you how big this had become. The graph should pop up now. <coughs> you can see here that the top line of how you met people is through friends. So that's traditionally how you used to make friends. But you'll see the biggest growth coming off the bottom there is um, online. The second biggest above online is at the bar at the restaurant. But as his research concludes, what is happening is people are actually meeting online and then they're choosing to meet at a bar or a restaurant. So what they're actually doing is they're lying. Right? They don't want to say that they met online. They, they generally have met online, but they say, no, we met at a bar or restaurant. Okay. So if you think this is a small fringe thing today, it isn't. This is the majority of, of how people are dating today. Again, who are you becoming in this is a far more important question than whether this is a good 
or badly, you guys are going to change my point. Okay, you can do that. Thanks, KP. Um, so a lot more people are using apps. That's reality. Um, it's incredibly distorted, the dating field. The research now, because it's app-based, can get quite specific. The most powerful people in the dating world are young women between the ages of 20 to 25. They control most of the power, who they accept kind of as king. But that dynamic changes as they get older. And, and pretty much the dating world becomes a totally different place if you're a woman after a certain age. Um, interestingly enough, this plays out in the stats. I want to show you quickly. I mean, this is just pure amusement. This is how men uh, rate women on AKCupid, a dating site. You'll notice they're least attractive to most attractive. There's a bit of a normal distribution there. Fortunately, it is based a lot on looks, so this is important. But I wanted to show you how women rate men. Have a look at this. There's not a single man who's rated a super attractive. Women have a harsh view on the male species. He comments, it's almost like every woman secretly knows there's a pair of Crocs or cargo pants or something in his closet, which means it doesn't matter who you are, you're not going to be super attractive. But it is brutal out there, and it's changed the whole nature of dating. Um, the trend people speak about how perfume sales are down below trend. Why? Because you can't smell perfume on an app. But yet makeup, which goes into the photographs, is shooting up. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating world to live in. Vanity Fair's got a whole long article on what they call hookup culture. They say that in four million years, there have been two big things that have disrupted dating. One was marriage. The other big thing that's disrupted dating is the internet. It literally has made a massive difference. There's no wonder this is so confusing. It speaks about people saying they're always sort of prowling on the internet. One lady spoke about a man who she hooked up with. They slept together, and within five minutes, she saw that he was back on Tinder, scrolling in the bed looking for the next person. There's a concept called a Tinderella, which is to sleep with a woman, meet her on Tinder, sleep with her before midnight. There's um, a bunch of women who say that if you're down uh, cash-wise towards the end of the month, you, you, they call it Tinder stamps, where you get a whole bunch of guys to take you out, eat their food, and then leave them. It is a disaster. Mary Everstadt writing says, a wildly contradictory mixture of chatter, should appear here, about how wonderful it is that women are now all liberated for sexual fun and how mysteriously impossible it has become to find a good, steady, committed boyfriend at the same time. Again, the question isn't, you know, what if this is sinful? The question is, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? And very few people can enter into this world and not have it impact you in any way. The question we should ask ourselves is, am I willing to offer sacrificial love and then give expression to consummation rather than the other way around, where it's actually you just got to sleep together and then you see if there's a chance of this working out. What is your grid for dating someone? How do you go about it? Is it wrong to use apps? No. I know some people who've used apps and are here, married, in this church. The right question isn't, is it wrong to use apps? The question is, who am I becoming and how am I going to be wise around how I use these things? There's more we can chat around, but I'll have to keep moving. The last thing is cohabitation or living together. Uh, Jonathan Grant, in his book, Divine Sex, calls these subprime relationships. Remember the subprime mortgage? He says it's the same thing, but just with relationships. They're almost designed to fail, is his comment. One in five of them, again, the experiment's coming back, the data's coming back. One in five of them end in marriage, but even those that end in marriage have a much higher likelihood of divorce. And I think the logic of it seems quite obvious. If you don't follow your appetites, you exercise self-control, you train yourself towards faithfulness. Pads. If you follow your desires and, and go for it, it's very hard to turn the tap off even after you've said a vow. Timothy Keith Heather, who we started today with, 
will bring us home. He says, but when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it is even the test. So many cases when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married. That person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say, I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say, my love for you has not reached the marriage level. It's not a good idea. And at the end of the day, um, we'll talk more about marriage next week, and we'll continue this journey. We've got weeks ahead, and come and ask questions. But those are areas which are temptations, which are told as no-brainers, whether it's porn, whether it's dating, cohabitating, um, or masturbation, but there's something better for us. So based on all this, if it's not following your passions, not fearing your desires, I think there's something of following Jesus. And the first thing we need to do is just get a vision. Just get a vision for what sex is for, this transformation, this bending towards ourselves, getting the chance to bend the other way as we use the energy we have to love God and love other people. It points beyond ourselves. It transforms us by self-control, and it's a witness to the world. We're going to need the Holy Spirit. We're going to need more than willpower. We're going to need God's Spirit. And isn't it incredible that Jesus again promises to fill us with the Spirit. Paul reminds us we're temples. Yeah, we've got treasures in jars of clay, but we're temples for the Spirit of God. We were bought at a price, and His Spirit longs to transform us. And then we're going to need some practices. We as a group of people in Seapon are going to need some communal practices that help us become a family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, where we're able to help some of the suffering, the real suffering that occurs when you go against the grain. We bring commitments into this community for marrieds, for singles, for people who find themselves in all kinds of different places. And there are two opportunities. As Kyle said, men are going to be meeting on Tuesday nights over the next couple of weeks, not this Tuesday, but next week. For six weeks, men are gathering to say, what does it look like to live out our sexuality? And everyone, as he said, is invited on the 4th of November to get to connect and kind of break down that, that, those walls that COVID has put up. I think big, big one in our communities. We just, we've just settled this thing. We're not going to commit sexual fraud with each other. We're not going to want something physically and act on it, but not offer everything emotionally, spiritually, financially. We, we're all in when it comes to giving expression to our sexuality. And can I encourage you that this obedience is not like a, oh, okay, Jesus, kind of thing. <coughs> can I encourage you that obedience actually leads to blessing and joy? God's way leads to joy. Actually, I was going to say that 15 years ago, I asked Leanne out on Camps Bay Beach was during this week. I think back on my life, like it started in the standard five classroom, a grade 10 dance, what a disaster. I played sport my whole life. I didn't know you were supposed to know girls. And I ended up going with a friend's girlfriend because he'd promised that he'd get, take the neighbor. So he went with a neighbor. Then I had his girlfriend. I'm going to say, I'm a loser. Absolute loser. And then try and desperately play catch up and just to hurt that cause. And my trick dances. I mean, it is pain, pain, pain. And you get into a place of doing it God's way and just feeling the blessing of that. And I know that's not everyone's story, but trust me that God can, can release his blessing. And I want to quote from Jonathan Grant in his books. He says, you know, neurologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometimes in childhood, 
the brain's joy center, how cool is this? The brain's joy center located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Grant continues, as James Fresnan and his colleagues explain, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. When you come into God's presence, he fills up your joy center, and you're able to live out what it means to be human. If you sit here today and say, Paul, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. If you knew, you wouldn't be comfortable inviting me into this community. You'd say, I struggle to believe that there is a place for me here. Well, I'll tell you that the Bible again and again talks to people who have found themselves in your position. People having sex with prostitutes. People doing wild things. And the Bible promises that they can be washed. They can be sanctified. That there's tremendous restoration and freedom. But the truth is that when we get a vision for God, we get the Holy Spirit at work. We get practices. We can experience incredible restoration. Leave you this picture of uh, kintsugi. This is an art form in Japan. They would make special china bowls, cups, and they would be beautiful. And when they would break, they wouldn't throw them away. They would take gold, and they would actually reweave the pottery item with the gold. And they would say, it now is even more valuable. It is something that is unique. There is no other piece that is made like this. It has been transformed by the beautifying work of the, of the, of the hands of the maker describes us as a community, broken people put together by God's spirit at work. Can I tell you, it even gets better than an inanimate object. <laughs> the truth is, God makes us alive. He doesn't just put a little bit of goodness in and hope, hopes we don't fall apart. No, he went to a cross and he was broken so that we could come alive to him. So I'm going to call Ruan up now and we're going to have a time of response. And again, we're not going to sing straight away. What's going to appear on the screen is, a, is just a prayer that you want to maybe own for yourself. It's a prayer which brings before our creator this area of our sexuality. And so while Rowan plays in the background, this slide gives an opportunity for us to respond. Read it, and if you feel comfortable, maybe the first time or uh, repeatedly, you want to confess your need for God and offer him your sexuality. So as Rowan plays in the background, this slide was going to stay on, and then Carl's going to get up and lead us in our last song.